Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck sticks? What the fuck nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. How are you? It's been a horrendous few days. When I talked to you on Monday, I'd recorded that Sunday. So I had not witnessed, we had all had not witnessed all the uh, horrors that happened over the next few days. My heart goes out to everybody in Las Vegas, everybody had family, everybody in this country that had to watch another lunatic with a arsenal lose his fucking mind and kill people. And then later that afternoon, uh, Tom Petty was um, taken to the hospital and kept on life support for a little while, and then he died. And a lot of people know that who watched my special that I had sort of brought Tom Petty up as a guy whose music connects all people, despite of political or affiliation or differences, and really represented what uh, what America can be. When it's great, he was great. He's a great American singer and songwriter and great performer. And it was just a, just gutted by the end of that day, man. Next couple of days are bad. There's no more good news. It doesn't seem just no more good news. There may be stories that provide some relief for a little while, but there's just no more good news. I don't know when that turns around. But I'll tell you, Tom Petty was great, and his music is still here, all of it. And I can tell you this, too. I saw him on the 22nd at the Hollywood Bowl, the second to the last show that he did in his life, and he was having a great fucking time. I, it, and it couldn't have been an act. I think all of them were just thrilled to, not only for the tour to be over, but to be together as long as they've been together, to have all those great songs, to perform for people that love them, the Heartbreakers. But Tom looked like he was having a great 
fucking time. I can tell you that. I did witness that. And I've been listening to his music for the last couple of days. And that music will, will forever be here, even though Tom is no longer with us. He should have been for longer, but he isn't. And again, the disaster in Las Vegas, it just... We live in a country where any fucking idiot can get a gun or 50. And this happens. It's a real fucking horror show. And again, my heart goes out to everybody who lost people and uh, the city, the country. Man, just... uh, When is there going to be some good news? How about now? This is a unique show today because uh, we're going to be doing basically an audiobook version of the first chapter of Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast. It's a book that Brendan and myself have put together. It comes out next Tuesday, October 10th. So this is a special thing we're doing today. This was the thing with the book. We had some interest in possibly doing a book of interviews with a few different uh, book publishers. And, uh, you know, some of the ideas were to put to publish interviews as whole entities, as the entire interview. And then uh, we didn't really like that. We didn't see what the point of that was. And then we sort of come upon this other idea where we would break the book into themes that are often discussed on WTF and then, you know, utilize our tremendous catalog of interviews to, to pull bits and pieces from conversations I've had with people that uh, fit the theme. There's about a dozen themes in the book. And, uh, and I'll tell you, man, when I read it over it, I had a very profound experience because I don't remember everything I've said to everybody. It's been over, we're in between 800 and 900 uh, episodes here. And I was reading a lot of the bits and pieces. I'm like, I don't remember having this conversation. I thought to myself, and not only that, it really hits you in the guts, this fucking book. Like all of it is very, when people talk, it comes at you at a different intensity than when people write. When you can craft a paragraph or a page and cut and paste and edit and grammatically correct everything. It's different than when someone's when someone's just talking, talking to you. It goes in a different way. So the way this all sort of moves this book when you read it, it's just uh, it's sort of a beautiful experience to read you know, about 150, 160 different people's experience with these themes, and you kind of move through them all through their personalities. It's it's an amazing experience to read the book. And the reason we're doing the episode like this today is because there is no audio version of the book. It really is a unique experience as a book. And we want it to have a life on the page. We made the book so it could be like its own thing. You know what I mean? Not just an extension of the podcast, but as a way to give everyone a taste of the book today to just so they can get an idea of what it's like. We put together the first chapter as an audio collection. This is close to how the book is executed. Not exact, but very close. Chapter one is growing up. The other chapters of the book are sexuality, identity, relationships, parenting, addiction, mental health, failure, success, mortality, and life lessons. There are dozens of different people in each section, 158 total people. And how I'm going to do this today, I'm going to identify the speakers in this chapter uh, by announcing their name the first time you hear them. But if they come up more than once, you'll only hear their name the first time. That'll help it flow better, more like the way it does when you're reading it. 
So I'll read my intro. I do an intro to every chapter. John Oliver did the intro to the book, the foreword to the book. I wrote a little intro to the book. Uh, let's do it. I'll read. I'll start with the first chapter and I will read my intro and then the, you will be engaged in the, uh, the flow of people talking about growing. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of like literature. And now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called the Foxed page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Up. Chapter One. Growing up, the smaller place it came from. I had my adventures and misadventures growing up, but it's the varying mixture of what I did or didn't get from my parents that really leaves a mark. The relationship we have with our parents explains how we engage with the world and other people. Sometimes bad experiences can lead us to a place of self-realization or at the very least, give us a great story. Sometimes our childhood experiences take a lifetime to process, if ever. These stories define us, they haunt us, but they also can liberate us. I am positive I did not grow up properly. Does anyone really? Something is definitely off. There are obviously many reasons for whatever emotional flaws I have as an adult, and I can trace most of them to my parents. I have grown into a place of gratitude rather than resentment toward them because it is essentially those flaws and my struggle with them that make me who I am. It is not really sympathetic or attractive to be actively mad at your parents after a certain age. You have to let it go at some point. It was 50 for me. My parents left me hanging in the providing the boundaries necessary for me to take chances and succeed and fail with the support and guidance necessary to define my character department. I had to put my sense of self together from scratch. I spent a good part of my life moving through the world like a kid lost at a mall, looking to other grown-ups as role models. I learned which cigarettes to smoke from Keith Richards. I dressed like Tom Waits for most of my junior year of high school. I looked to Woody Allen to understand what it meant to be smart and funny. My mother was a bit sarcastic and could be a little cutting. She was funny. She was always expressing herself in a creative way. My father was unpredictable and explosive at times. Sometimes that explosion would go in, sometimes out. He thought he was funny, but he wasn't. They both had a lot of energy. These are the things in the plus column. It's always good to learn about the struggles other people went through while they were growing up. I like that Paul Shear felt comfortable sharing with me the very difficult situation he found himself in after his parents' divorce. Same with John Darneal from the Mountain Goats, who is still dealing with the pain his stepfather put him through. I was able to laugh in disbelief at Molly Shannon's story of complete parental irresponsibility when she got on a plane without an adult and flew to New York City accompanied only by another child. I'm glad people still tell these stories about their childhoods. 
It took years of me talking to people in my garage to finally get some perspective on things I went through as a kid and stop them from undermining me as an adult. Well, that and a little therapy and some specific reading and age. Conan O'Brien. I think I was an anxious kid. I was, uh, you know, I, it's not a glamorous, I was not the class clown. I was funny for my friends, but quiet in the classroom. And I worked really hard and I was kind of grim. And I have to say, I didn't really enjoy my childhood. Socially socially uncomfortable? I was not socially uncomfortable, no, because I could make my friends laugh, but I just, I was not easygoing. From fourth grade till when? Till like now. Sir Ian McKellen. The first three years of my life, I didn't sleep in a bed. Uh, I slept on a mattress under a metal table in our downstairs room in case a bomb uh, knocked the building over. So, and blackout material so that the lights didn't really? uh, attract any German bombers that were coming over. Do you remember that? Oh, clearly, but and and, and not much to eat, uh, but quite healthy eating, mm-hmm. uh, uh, rationing. Yeah. But, of course, you don't, when you're growing up, know that um, that, that's not the norm. And uh, I I was well looked after, a lot of love in my house. Kevin Hart. Grew up Philadelphia, PA. Like what kind of what kind of area? What kind oh, of neighborhood? Uh, my neighborhood, shit. Uh, <laughs> North Philadelphia, 15th area. You know, crime city. You know, we right now I think we third in the in, in the world in deaths. Probably. Yeah. New Year's we opened it up with five murders in yeah. my city. Yeah. Happy uh, New Year. Yeah. It's like it's you know it's 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 not the best place in the world, but I love it. It's home for me. Mel Brooks. My mother. Kitty. Yeah. Kitty Kaminsky. Kitty, Kitty Kaminsky. Yeah. Kitty Kaminsky. Yeah. Uh, raised four boys. You know, those days, diapers. Sure. You had to wash them. Yeah, they know? brought them and it was yeah. cloth. I'll never forget one one time I wanted to see uh, a movie and I didn't, I, you know, she gave me three deposit bottles. Yeah. Each one three cents a piece. Milk bottles. Milk bottles. Yeah. And, and so that was nine cents. You needed a dime. Yeah. And, and she went to, she. this is true, she yeah. went next door to Mrs. Miller. Yeah. And borrowed a penny, yeah. so right. I could make the dime. <laughs> to and yet, but uh, she was, you know, I don't know whether she was typical, but she was a wonderful, loving, caring, one beautiful mother. RuPaul Charles. I was watching a kid the other day. Yeah, he must have been about four years old, and he was so happy to be in a human body. He's just <laughs> jumping around and going up upside down, and he was running over there. And he came over and I was like, "Oh my god, it's great! Yeah. I'm a human. Look at me! Yeah. Look, I can do this. Yeah. I can do it. That's what I wanted for do. no reason. For just no to reason. do it. Just, just to move it. your hands, jump around, roll on the ground. Exactly. With a parent, an exhausted parent, going, "Yes, you can. You can do exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. But unfortunately, when I was a kid, you know, my parents were in their own melodrama, mm-hmm. and I wanted so I, I really couldn't." you know do that as much as possible well selfish parents make you don't they don't provide a, a place where you can feel comfortable to be yourself even right you just get steamrolled absolutely they, they don't pay attention you don't get any reaffirmation or any affirmation at all right. like good for you kid you know that's great you just sort of luckily for me though my sister Renata yeah. who's losing, moving to Louisiana who was my soul sister whom I moved to Atlanta with and who got married at 17 her yeah she was my soul she was the one who uh, said you're great. You should do this. Why don't you do that? I had that in my sister, so that was great. Jim Gaffigan. Four boys and two girls, and what? I'm the youngest of six. What was what? How what's it? How old's your oldest brother? Uh, the oldest in my family is my sister Kathy, and she's I don't know 
uh, she could be like a hundred and I wouldn't know. Um, and then my brother Mike is, uh, I, I don't know, fifties. Yeah. Somewhere in it's there. It's all a blur, you know? It's like, who cares? Well, you kind of know. I mean, I kind of know that, you know, there's six kids over like seven or eight years. They're just, they're just old. Now they're old. They're older than me. Yeah, but like, well, how old were you when you saw them all leave, I imagine? Yes. Yes. I always wonder about that. Was that difficult? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah, it was a little bit. You're leaving me here with these people that are crazy. Your parents. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of, you know, the enthusiasm wanes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they're like, six? oh, you're still here. <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> so there was some of that. But there was also, and I, you know, when I started off, I used to, there's, yeah. there's such a, uh, uh, an amount of distrust that develops in parents of that generation. They had been lied to by so many teenagers. By the time I got there, they were just like, you're guilty. And I was like, I didn't do anything wrong. And they're like, just go to your room. And you're like, all right. John Oliver. When my dad first started taking me to games, Mm -hmm. I would wear, to Liverpool games, I would wear, I would make him let me wear my full Liverpool kit. So this is me at eight, nine years old. My full Liverpool kit underneath whatever I was wearing because there was a part of me as a child that felt if someone got injured on the field, I'm ready. They would just turn to the crowd and say, "Does anyone have a kit so that we can carry on?" And I would say, "Yes, my name is John. I'm eight years old, and clearly, somewhere in me, I think that this is going to turn out well. That this eight-year-old is going to be able to physically compete with this twenty-nine-year-old super fit yeah, athlete." But, but but that's the dream. That's yeah. so that's that's touching. I wish I had that. I, I didn't. I didn't. Uh... I, wore, I wore cleats. I wore cleats to the sure. game as well. You're ready so you to go. This clip clop of this yeah. eight-year-old kid going, "Let's do this." Maria Bamford. I used to play the violin. Really? Was very good at it because of a weird. You know, you start when you're three, so you're all of a sudden. You were playing violin at three. three? Yeah, yeah. Because my parents uh, forced you. They t- well, did they take your hands to the to the strings? It was forced in a way that I, you know, was not. Un- I was unconscious of what was happening yeah until i was around 11 and right. then i said oh i think i'd like to quit and they said no oh no you cannot because we have put in a lot of time and money and wow you're freakishly good at it so why not continue so i was good at it but i did not enjoy it at all paul Shear. my mom took my weird al yankovic in 3d album and broke it over her knee because it was a song was on there. It was called Nature Trail to Hell, and it was on one of the uh, the devil worship lists that like the the church had given them. Like these, if your children have any of these albums, and one of them was a Weird Al album, you must find this and destroy it. She destroyed it in front of you. Yes, and that you and my LL Cool J album. Your, oh shit! Yeah, and uh, I was it was terrible. I was crying like no. My Weird Al, my Weird Al album. Like, did you ever tell Weird Al that story? I did actually. I got to tell Weird Al that story, which was awesome and a great full uh, 360 there. Oh my God! How did um, he respond? He just thought it was insane because it's the song is called Nature Trail to Hell in 3D about going to a drive-in to see a horror movie called Nature Trail to Hell in 3D. Like it's there's nothing. I mean, there's nothing satanic about Weird Al Yankovic at yeah, all. Like in the no. greatest stretch of the imagination, but. Like, you know, and I'd listen to In Excess, and my mom's but like... that might be Satan. It might be. <laughs> you never know. They're you very never know. cunning. He's charming. And that's it. That and was very weird funny, out. yeah. Satan comes in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But my mom uh, like took all my action figures away and gave me like Ten Commandments <laughs> oh, figures. On, like I had like on. I had Moses, like literally like, a Moses action figure, and he had like two tablets in his hand, like oh, the Ten come Commandments. On, you're kidding me? Oh no! What would you do with those action figures? I would play with them like I would play Batman or GI Joe, like flying Moses. <laughs> yeah, like I would. I would like make them like I'd make Moses like swing down a pole and change in, and get into a Batmobile. My head still the Batmobile, so <laughs> Moses drive a Batmobile. We were hardcore Catholic growing up. I mean, Church my parents, my, yeah, my parents are, yeah, the whole nine yards. It, it, it's in my bones. I mean, as much as I've tried to uh, evolve past it in certain ways, uh, it's in my bones. What are the liabilities of it, carrying it with you in your mind? Body shame. <laughs> uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, just, uh, you know, it's funny because I've been On accused, what level? I've been accused over the years of, oh, you're so, you know, you're self-deprecating and that's your act. And I was like, you know, that really comes from finding myself uh, you know uh very flawed i think that's at the root of catholicism is we're just flawed and so there's nothing we can do about it <laughs> and there's nothing we can do about it and so i grew up just you know having a very dark self view what, in a lot of you ways. too tall or too what too skinny too tall you know my dick's too big yeah. you know it's just gonna hurt somebody <laughs> well i don't want i hate to get that out there as a rumor but do you know what i mean my <laughs> My, yeah, no, my sure. dick is huge. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a lot of got a lot of girth. How we hurt people? You don't want to hurt people. Well, no. The thing is, and I was so worried for a long time. I actually had doctors say you're going to hurt someone with that. And then it was only later in life that I found out that you know this is a great gift. But <laughs> for years, for years, but for years, I lived with the shame of this. You know, my penis is too big. I hope no woman ever finds out. <laughs> handicapped, and, yeah. horrible handicapped. And so you know, you live with these things, and then you eventually you learn to work with them. I was not a hypochondriac, but I probably feigned illnesses to get my parents' attention. But I don't think I was a... I didn't believe I had the illness. I just, you know, when you're one of six, you want you, you got to do anything to get some FaceTime. So I was not beyond trying to just, uh, you know, uh, have something. I mean, I remembered envying. I read Death Be Not Proud. Yeah. With uh, the John Gunther Jr. story. Uh, John Gunther wrote about some. No, Death Be Not Proud no, is no, about the like boy stupid. who's like fourteen and he gets a he gets a brain tumor, oh. and um, it's really touching. And yeah. everyone, you know, you're supposed to read it when you're thirteen, fourteen years old. Yeah. And you're supposed to just feel so terrible for the boy. Yeah. And I read it and I thought, man, that guy's getting so much attention. <laughs> I remember envying a kid with a brain tumor, and he dies at the end of the book. And I remember thinking, man, <laughs> the brain tumor—that's the, the way to go. The presents he got. Yeah, that's bad. Norm MacDonald. When I was very young, I was very, very, very shy and very afraid of everything. I mean, people say they're shy when they're kids, but I was like, uh, it was a pathology. Aren't you still afraid of everything? I am. I mean, I try, I try to hide it and deal with it, but on a day-to-day -day basis, I, I can muster. I, no, I'm not afraid of everything. I'm afraid of very few things. Like what? Uh, illness, yeah. death. Yeah. The, how'd, you get, how'd you get peace of mind out of the other shit? Well, when I was... I, um, when I was very, I, this is a weird thing that happened to me when I was young. Yeah. I don't know if this means anything. Let's try I, it. I remember it, but it was a moment I had that was, uh, it wasn't religious or epinaphic or anything, but it, it transformed me to some degree is that I was always fucking so afraid of everything. And if I went to a store, I'd have to walk around forever before I could even face a, a person in the store to buy a pack of gum. I don't know why the fuck I was like this. Yeah. But anyways, when I was nine, um, there was a blind, we lived in rural Ontario and there was a blind um, friend of my dad's yeah. um, that I had to, he said, take him to the store. 
And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I have to take this blind fucker? <laughs> and I'm already shy and shit. So I'm taking him to the store, and then the fucker wants me to explain everything, <laughs> describe everything to him. Yeah. So I'm like, there's a, some grass over here, and now there's a lamppost. And this guy's all happy. Oh, what about the lamppost? I mean, it's just a lamppost. Yeah. So it goes on and on. But some thing happened to me during it sounds bizarre but something happened to me where i was actually instead of always looking inward which i think i'd always done before that one time i was looking outward anyways uh while i was talking to him i suddenly uh, had a sort of a hysteria like i was laughing i started laughing and stuff and um i don't even know why i'm remembering this but i started laughing about everything and everything seemed like um very, very funny to me. And then a, a couple of weeks later, I saw a homeless guy and he was talking about, he was, he was talking, he started talking to me. Yeah. And he was talking to me about John D. Rockefeller. He's like, I was at John D. Rockefeller's funeral. Yeah. And all this shit. Yeah. And I was laughing at him and shit. And then he started laughing. And I was like, it's all fucking crazy shit. Like, if something came to me. Yeah. Where I, I started. And uh, so now I find everything funny except like death and shit. Molly Shannon. I was raised by my dad from yeah. the time I was really little. Yeah. My, we were in a really bad car accident when I was really little. I was four, and my dad was driving, and my mom was killed, and my little sister was three, and my cousin. Mm. So it was very hard on my dad. He had to recover. He, he was very badly injured, so we went to live with my aunt. So it was very complicated. It mm. was a lot of sadness from a very young age. Yeah. But then also my dad was like a real survivor. He, he, was, uh, he, he drank when we were little, but then he got into recovery. Oh, good. Um, I think it was that generation of, you know, he was very Catholic, but repressed in a lot of ways. So there was some sadness with that. But, but, but he was also really charismatic and fun and yeah. would do anything. And he was real wild. So it, and, and, and really... Like what? Oh, that was like such crazy. a great buildup. Like, we're going to oh, go on the God. roller coaster with no seatbelts. Like, we, we would do crazy stuff. Like, we would go to the airport and we'd be like, let's take a, you know, a mystery trip. And we would have no, you know, no suitcases or anything. And really? it was when they had those those airlines where you could pay right on the airplane. Do you remember yeah, you that? Yeah, you didn't have to... People's uh, Express. You didn't have to even uh, fly under your name in the old days. Yeah, you yeah. Any, yeah. Anybody's name. So you could yeah, just... it was completely... So we would go to the airport, pick a city, and uh, just fly to the city, and then... Borrow clothes when we got there, or buy clothes like crazy stuff. And I call, and my dad would call in sick for me to school, like very extensive. Sounds crazy. like a great father. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, he, fuck school. We're going on an airplane. <laughs> he had depression, and I think he would also could be really he'd go up and down. Sure, so I, he, I that's exciting. So I think he had fun. <laughs> I have one of those. It's very exciting. Yeah, like, yeah. like you literally went to cities and you just not you didn't have clothes, so you'd buy clothes. Yeah, I'd borrow a bathing suit from the woman that worked behind the counter, <laughs> and you know, like crazy, crazy stuff like that. And then I hopped a plane when I was twelve. We told my dad, me and my friend Ann, we're like, we're gonna hop a plane to New York, and he was like, uh, he dared us. Yeah. So we. How went old to were the, you? We were like twelve. Oh, good. That's so we, good. We, we, <laughs> We went to the airport and we had ballet outfits on and we put our hair in buns and we wanted to look really innocent. And this was, again, when flying was really easy. You didn't need your ticket to sure. get through. Apparently, and, you didn't need an adult either. Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, and we told my dad and we were just like, we saw there were two flights. We were either going to go to San Francisco or New York. And we thought, oh, let's go to the New York. It's leaving early. So we went. We said to the stewardess, we just want to say goodbye to my sister. Can we go on the plane? And she was like, sure. And then she led us on. And it was a really empty flight because it was out of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. And we sat back there. And then all of a sudden, you just hear like, the plane takes off. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> and we 
doing like little ballet outfits and buns, and I was like, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou, my soul, and blessed for thy Jesus, holy Mary, mother God, pray for sinners now, they are. Yeah. Um, and then the, the stewardess that had given us permission to to go say goodbye to, bye to my sister came by to ask if, if we wanted snacks or beverages and she was like can I get you ladies something to eat she looked like she was like oh <laughs> motherfucker you know so she uh, so we we wondered if we were going to get in trouble but she ended up not telling anyone and then when we landed in New York City she was like bye ladies <laughs> have a nice trip <laughs> I, I just like I'm, it's a, it's such an exciting story, but the irresponsibility of all the adults in this story is somehow undermining my appreciation of it. You were twelve year old girls in fucking ballet outfits, and everybody's sort of like, "Have a good time." What was world was crazy. that? It was a crazy world. What did you do in New York? And now you're gonna say we got drunk and we went to a. Well, again, because I had a crazy childhood, we called my dad. We were like, "We did it!" And he was like, "Oh, Dad, Molly, oh." Jeez, well, try to... So, basically, he couldn't... <laughs> try to say, what? He didn't know what to do. He said, try to see if you could stay... Go find a hotel that you could stay in. Oh, my God. Me and Mary, my sister, will come meet you. We'll drive there. So, basically, we were like, all right, we'll try to find a hotel. But he was kind of excited because he liked crazy stuff. But, basically, we didn't have that much... We just had our ballet bags and a little bit of cash. So, we went to a diner, and we dined and dash and we stole things. We were like little con artists. Wait, did you actually make it to the city? We made it to the city. We How'd just asked people. I was like, how do you get to Rockefeller Center? Because I'd just seen TV. And you're still in your ballet outfit. B- ballet outfit, yeah. Really <laughs> no, nobody crazy. said, are you girls lost? Nothing like that? No, nothing. nothing <laughs> they went into a bar, and they got drink up, ladies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we did try to go to hotels, and, and my dad would call and ask, could they just stay there till we get there? And none of the hotels wanted to be responsible. Oh, my God. So he That's was funny. like, he was like, all right, you got to come home. And he was like, but I'm not paying for it, so try to hop on one on the way back. <laughs> so, we, so we tried to hop on many planes, but it was, the flights were all so crowded. Right. So we ended up having to have him pay for it, and he made us pay for him, pay, pay it all back with our babysitting money. Oh, so that was the big punishment? <laughs> yeah, that was, there was no punishment. Well, no, I know. Yeah. I mean, clearly, was there any sort of like, oh, you survived, I was just testing you. He loved that kind of stuff. Like I said, he was wild. He used to, in his drinking days, he would, you know, go to bars, and if somebody didn't let him in, he'd be like, damn it. You know, he'd go, go into the bar and knock all the glasses down. He was like a kind of guy who could maybe get arrested. Like, it was crazy. I love the, 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 the sort of uh, the strange nostalgic excitement you have for, for, the, for this borderline child abuse. <laughs> yeah, it was complicated. He... <laughs> oh, now you're going to say that? Yeah, there's just one story that's complicated. Nothing, but... but he was also a very loving parent. I think it's, yeah. it's complicated. You no, know? He was yeah. also really supportive and kind of made me feel like I could do anything. And and uh, so in that way, it felt really free and wild. But then but then in other ways, I had to learn the rules of like how regular people live. And, from other you know, people. Yeah, I'm from other it. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like professionals. <laughs> like people you pay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? John Darneal. Okay, so I want you to think. Yeah. Wherever you were when you were five, right? Yeah. Where was it? Uh, 
Wayne, New Jersey. Oh man, and with both parents? Yeah. Do they still own this house, or have they? Moved? Oh no, 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 okay. no. I, I, we lived there. I, we left when I was about six, but it was a red brick apartment complex. Cool. Okay. That's where well, I first saw the harmony guitar. That's where awesome. I first remember it being played. Oh, that's an amazing memory. So, but when you think of it, when you think of yourself standing in it, does it seem like you have room to run around and to, to be a kid? No, not really. Not really. For my place seemed big to me in my mind. The hallway. Yeah. I remember running all the way to the end of the hallway and running all the way back down and yeah. being exhausted. Yeah, yeah, like, oh yeah. man, I'm running all the way to the to the heater at the end and back. Yeah. That's two steps, right? No, now that on. I've been in the house, it's really? two paces. And I remember running down that hallway and the distance between my room and my parents' room, which I remember being a walk. It's like yeah. if I have to go see dad to talk to him about yeah. something, I'm gonna walk down the hall, I'm gonna get a talking to, you know. Right. That's two steps. <laughs> so those memories were like of what, three years old, four years old? Four, yeah, four, three. And those were the only things you really remembered? I remember, well, the thing is like we had added a room while yeah. I was there and it was called the front room mm-hmm. and I remembered it being a cavernous big room with a very high ceiling. It's a fucking garage. It's really? A, it's the tiniest. It's where the students live now because now it's a rental unit. There was a fucking poster of Biggie and Tupac in on the front door. I was so stoked. Right? And, uh, and I was like, well, these people won't mind if I knock on their door. So I Did knock. they know who you were? No, they oh. never heard of me. I was, I was glad. That would have been really awkward. So... Uh, <laughs> Oh my God! It's, hey, it's not, oh, really? This is my old house. Could I come in and yeah. feel sad about hey, shit? Yeah. <laughs> you don't mind if I come in and weep in the hallway, do you? No, yeah. that was what I did. I walked in, I looked around, and just went, "Whoa!" So this is a bedroom now because this is the front room. We had a piano in there and a stereo. Were you telling this to whoever? Lived a little there? bit, but yeah. for the most part, I was just—I mean, I didn't want to see. So you're too sort of much. like the weird old guy that yeah. kind of came by, and they no, were the weird of... permanently young guy who came by. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> no, it's like I try—I I, I try—I wanted to keep it uninvasive. I wanted to go. I know this is strange. But I lived here when I was a child, and I am a musician. I happen to be playing in town. If I could just come in just to see the house I used to live in just for a second, that would be awesome. And they let me right in. I looked at the backyard, and I looked at my old room, and I uh, nodded and said thank you, and then, you know, then told my therapist about it when I got home. But it wasn't that traumatic. It was like, it was just, it was interesting. It was kind of sweet in a way. It was good to see. It's when, when you feel like you're okay with where your life is at, it's good to see the smaller place it came from. Ahmed Ahmed. Then my dad my parents immigrated to... Uh, to the states i was a month old uh-huh yeah i was like a lion king yeah <laughs> so, oh, we're going to america you know? med, med. um and then we ended up in riverside california which is where i was raised and we were the only arab family not only on the block but in the whole almost the whole city really all white wow. what is that wow yeah well you know latino we were it was interesting because we we ended up in this little like cool little suburb yeah. outside of you know uh la and riverside and um close to the college campus, UCR. Mm-hmm. It was very um, like middle class and a little bit lower middle class, mostly white families. But then our high school was really racially diverse. We yeah. were black, Mexican, yeah. uh, Asian. And we were sort of considered like the thug high school. Like, you know, athletes would come and do really well there. But there was, all, there was also some gang violence and that sort of thing. Right. But I, when I was in high school, you know, I was, I blended in perfectly. Like nobody really, they were like, you know, what is it? Where are you from? Like they didn't really You mean understand. if you didn't say your name? Even when I'd say my name and they, they'd hear Egypt, they were always sort of mystified by it. You yeah. Know? And I'd get the little jokes like, you know, did you come in on your flying carpet and did you, did you climb a pyramid and right. do you have camels and like all those jokes gener- have changed now. Generic. Yeah. <laughs> now it's like, do you fly planes? <laughs> <laughs> do you not, are you good? Are you good? In, are you good in chemistry? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do, do you use fertilizer every day? <laughs> yeah. Um, how many wives do you have? Uh-huh. I remember growing when I was a kid thinking my family's weird. We're just weird. I, I don't know how to put my 
uh, my finger on it. Yeah. But I, I grew up thinking we're not, and maybe everyone grows up that way, but I remember thinking we're kind of like an Irish Catholic Adams family. Like there's something <laughs> off with us. <laughs> so I very much grew up feeling where, uh, now my mother would be horrified. She yeah. said, that's not true. <laughs> How dare my mother is Margaret Dumont in the Marx Brothers movies. Well, I uh, I don't know why you would say that. It's not true, yeah. but uh, but that was the feeling that my brothers and sisters all had. Was yeah. we're an odd family, and we never quite knew what we were. The kids would come over, you know, to my house, and and, and this is a joke I used to do because it's a true story. One of my friends walked in, and my parents were praying, and he looked at me and he said, "What are they looking for?" <laughs> And I was like, I go, oh, they're well, they're praying, and he's like, to who? And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, so it's. I always had to explain what Islam was uh-huh. and talk about, you know, the the belief of it all behind it. We were like the Arab monsters. <laughs> Come we, on, we were like man. the Arab Adam family. We were. We were like the weird family on the block because my my mom was always cooking, you know, stuff with like spices that Americans weren't used to, like cumin and. Sure. You know stuff like that, garlic, and mm-hmm. all these weird fumes would be. You know, and you bring aroma. you bring friends over, and you'd have to. They're explain. like, yeah, what are they? You know, what's yeah. your mom cooking? Yeah. Cow brains, yeah. or, you know, whatever. Um, and my dad, you know, he was a night owl, so he'd sit up till three, four in the morning, watering the grass, smoking cigarettes, by you know, watering by hand. Yeah. So the neighbors were always like, "What are you doing out there for?" You know. So not so you were re- religiously odd, and then actually odd. And on top of that, my because my parents only ate halal food or kosher sure. food, meat, yeah. they had to. They didn't sell it back then in the 70s at stores, so my dad had to drive to Fontana, California with our station wagon and load up. He'd go to a farm and load up the station wagon with chickens and ducks and rabbits. And do it himself? And, and they'd bring it back. We had a, a live meat locker, basically, in our backyard. Really? And every day around 5, my mom, or earlier, my mom and dad would go out to the backyard and they'd pick out a chicken and my dad would hold it down and say the Muslim prayer, please bless this soul and let our family have sustenance. No. And my mom would do the, the there's a way you sacrifice, they say. Cut yeah. the head off. So the animal doesn't suffer. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and she, you know, it's like Clash of the Titans. She's holding <laughs> up this head and she's got blood all over her. And I was like, ah. And, and we were eating dinner by, you know, by 9 p.m. The funny thing was the kids would come over during the day from the neighborhood and play with the rabbits or the chickens or whatever, and they'd come back to find their favorite rabbit they're playing with, and it was gone. They're like, what happened to Fluffy? <laughs> yeah. We ate him. We're eating his sister tonight. Dave Attell. I do mostly my dad on stage. You know, like my dad, when my, I used to work for my dad, so I do- What did like he do? We, work where? I, we used to, uh, my parents had a, a, a bridal dress tuxedo rental shop. Yeah. And I worked there from the time I was like 16 till I was, I guess, 19. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which is, I guess, slave, you know, underage, whatever, right? No, right. I guess not 16. But I was like- What was uh, your job there? Like getting the shoes? I getting... cleaned the store. I was head of shipping and receiving. I sold shoes. You were head of shipping and receiving? Yeah, it was me and my grandpa, so I was his- <laughs> boss and um my dad used to the way he used to talk to me i would i i do that on stage as my control voice yeah which, which is, it helps me you know? what is that voice you know the uh sarcastic um uh whatchamacallit biting cutting dude yeah you know? yeah and, uh, it, it works it definitely works because i realized that's how men talk yeah my dad was a man and that's how men talked and they didn't give sh- you know they would do things like i uh, one time saw my dad with diabetes full-blown you know like diabetes lift uh, like a 150 pound cash register, like one of these old cash registers just by himself. And I was the guy who was like working out, you know, back then I, you know, every kid in Long Island lifted weights and practiced karate. I couldn't lift it. And he like just fucking lifted it, <laughs> yeah. put it over there, lit a cigar and said like, okay, what, what next? What do we have to do next? And I'm like, only a man can do that because yeah. he knew it had to be done. 
Russell Peters. My dad was a meat inspector. Really? Yeah, he worked in a chicken plant. <laughs> oh my god! So you know, he, he he just fucking. Did you ever go to work with him? Uh, no, he 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 has to wear he had to wear whites and rubber boots and a hard hat and horrendous. And he would come out stinking every oh, day. Horrendous. And my mom worked in the cafeteria at Kmart. No, remember those cafeterias they used sure. to have in the back with the yeah. Salisbury steak? And yeah. And now a great day for us would be when there was Salisbury steak left over. My mom would bring it home. No. Yeah. Are you was, serious? Or hot dogs. I'm like, yes. Special night. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. So there was nothing. There wasn't ever like the, uh, uh, you know, everyone always asked me, what about being a doctor or a lawyer? I'm like, there's none in my family. Joe Mandy. Both of my parents were trial lawyers. So I just, there, there was a few years where I just didn't talk to my parents because they would just... Oh man, between my sister and I, we would just get cross-examined on everything. Oh my you know, god. That was just how we were raised, just uh, constant. So always looking for the lie? They were always looking for the lie even that it was just it was crazy. So and my parents have, are much They never better. said that my client, my son there was <laughs> Basically, no- I mean like we would be sitting at a dinner table and if they smelled anything fishy, they would they were back on the clock and just grilling us until they figured out what the issue was or whatever and so oh my god and, and my sister and i both handled that in different ways because i think from seventh to tenth grade i just basically just pleaded the fifth on everything you know what i mean i just didn't talk to them because i didn't want to incriminate myself <laughs> so i really like there was a few years where i hardly ever talked to my parents just out of fear of being uh grilled yeah and my sister on the other hand she uh she sort of just pled insanity. My sister was just this like wall of noise. She just like everything was just anytime my parents tried to confront her on it, she'd just scream and slam her door. And that was, I kind of jealous. Actually, that's a much better tactic. I just internalized everything. Ron Funches. I remember my first day of school, my mom was just being like, hey, like some kids are going to like you. Some kids are, are not going to like you for who you are. Don't ever change who you are for them just like if kids like you cool if they don't fuck them that she said that mm-hmm. god damn i wish i had your mom <laughs> she made her own mistakes <laughs> <laughs> but she's but like, pretty awesome in high school they thought i had the most like severe case of ibs they'd ever seen they thought it was uh stomach cancer because i just I, I literally for about four years woke up every morning with just explosive diarrhea just yeah. every morning just that was just my part of my routine have you got any good shitting in public stories in your pants uh there was one time <laughs> actually there's one time i was on a conclave sorry being like, insensitive no it's fine i that's it's my life you know <laughs> shitting all the time uh i was at this thing for my jewish youth group when i was like 15 jewish yes. youth group stories yeah and we were on a bus uh, in wisconsin and we had just uh we had just gone to taco bell so i mean already red flag did you know when you're eating it that Pro- i mean yeah it's always like sort of russian roulette with mexican yeah. food yeah Mex- <laughs> mexican roulette yeah and uh immediately i just knew i was I, I, I had to go and it was like in a school bus yeah so there was no bathroom and i had to go up to my rabbi <laughs> the front of the bus and say you know uh bad things are happening to me we really need to pull over at the next rest stop and uh he was like yeah i'll make sure of it so we went back i went back to the back of the bus and you know the rest stop was five miles ahead and I'm just like, you know, Come pacing. On, and, and then the bus driver just blew right past it. And the next rest stop wasn't for like 45 miles. And I didn't know. I, had, I, I My body was going to explode, you know. Yeah. And I, and I, to this day, I can't listen to Tom Petty without thinking of... Uh, I, I put on the Wildflowers mm-hmm. album. And yeah. I, like the only time I've ever successfully meditated 
but I meditated for those 45 minutes to the next rest stop and ran. And I, my friend was in the bathroom and he said he's never heard a human body make those <laughs> kinds of noises. I was in there for everyone on the bus is waiting for me. I, mean, I was in there for like 35 minutes just So that, that evacuating. is a, an amazing testament to the power of meditation and complete and, fear of peer judgment. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I probably... There, I probably hurt my body in the long run the way I was clenching because every muscle. That that is a that is a superhuman feat. Mm-hmm. That that is almost. Nietzsche. I still to this day I don't know how I did it because it was it was bad. This is not my nose. My nose was completely was rebuilt. Shattered. No, it was I was beaten up. Uh, I ran into like yeah, I'm not kidding. I ran into a street gang who and I was wearing a T-shirt that had the Irish flag on it, and I they were Italian, uh, and th- this was right near the aquarium in Boston. Down uh, and by I was the with water. My fr- yeah, I was with my friend at the time, John Madeiras, and this is late high school. So it's near the North End, kind of. Yeah, and they uh, beat the shit out of me. Got um, him too? No, left him alone, because I, I was a little bit of a wise guy. They said they wanted 50 cents, and I said no, and they said why not, and I said I don't feel like it. And just as I finished that, uh, it <laughs> the tuh sound, um, I got hit so hard in the face. Um, and did, never, you, did you fight back? I I mean I got hit a bunch of times so hard in the face that I don't think I did much. I don't remember. And I remember they were, it was over pretty quickly. And then uh, I had to have my I went to um, the I went to the emergency room and uh, the doctor I'll never forget his name Doctor Constable he had a British accent. And he looked kind of crazy. He had crazy hair, and he looked like uh, the poet Ezra Pound. And I yeah. said, "And I said, is my nose broken?" And he said, "Broken? Good God, man! It's a bag of bones." <laughs> I'll never forget that. That's a true story. In ninth grade, I took Spanish in high school. It was the only non-honors class I ever took, uh, and it, uh, it. I showed up the first day, ninth grade, so I was very short and braces and. Sweater vest. I don't know why I wore sweater vest. And what I made you do that. What I thought it was cool. Uh, <laughs> and I got into Spanish the first day of class, and it was just me and it was like me and like the JV basketball team. That was the class basically. Right. And uh, I I was like it'll be fine. I listened to Outcast or whatever, and uh, I sit down and the, and they they were just ruthless. They would make fun of me. They would uh, call me names. They would choke me i got choked a lot but it was never violent they right. just would come up from behind when i wasn't expecting it and like wrap sometimes it was like piano wire i don't like they had piano wire they would like wrap wire around my neck and i would freak out obviously yeah and then they would let go and just crack up Ugh. they'd be like ah you stupid yeah yeah you know yeah, and he's we, like oh he's frightened for the right reason right what an idiot right what an idiot <laughs> i was like how stupid of me to freak out yeah um so it was just it was bad and they would throw like empty cans of soda at my head and stuff and it was just it sucked and, and the then, teacher just let this happen yeah our te- yeah our teacher that spanish teacher was so broken you know she was so done with life that she like it was it was chaos like when she was an older public yep. school teacher yep she looked like newman from seinfeld so ever, everyone called her newman oh like that was she'd be able, they would call her miss newman and she would respond to that i mean it was bad and uh and then that December, our our principal made this big announcement that there no more gambling was allowed in the hallways. I didn't. Was there gambling? Yeah, people that? like played dice in the hallways and stuff. Oh and, my god! And uh, what, what I kind of fucking high <laughs> it was crazy. Um, and we there I, were active dice games. There were active dice games. There were there were like the Asian like, come on seven. The Asian kids would have break dance competitions in between classes like, in the hallway. Would, in the hallway, and I actually started doing this thing. It's like it's I do it on stage sometimes too. I got really good at making it look like I was about to start break dancing. 
Because actually, I was just trying to get through the hallway, right? But I yeah. would get in the middle of this like big circle, and it would be like my turn, yeah. and I would start like moving around to the to the music, and yeah. like you know, yeah. pumping my shirt and making it look like I was about. To, and I would just do it until they realized I was never gonna start breaking. And I would go for like two minutes without actually doing any <laughs> dancing before they like pushed me out of the oh <laughs> circle. God. But anyway, but back to the, the the story. So our our principal, she instituted this no gambling policy, uh, and I I saw an opportunity, and I went up to these kids in the back of my class and I was like, you know, I can teach you a gambling game that you'll never get in trouble for playing if you just stop choking me, right? And it was they, that clear? There was a was negotiation? Like, yeah, yeah, it was a clear negotiation yeah. and they thought about it and the next day I brought, I taught them how to play dreidel for money. Stop it. I swear. Yeah. And so for like a good month outside my Spanish class, you would walk by and just see these black kids in like Averex jackets huddled over a top. Yeah, just like, yo, that's a W, motherfucker. Pay up. <laughs> Ali Brosh. I was never a cool kid. Right. Um, they they sort of like made an attempt to maybe like, maybe I could be in that group, but I was too they scared. They reached out. They sent yeah, they, a representative. And, uh, and I, I was too scared. I was, no, I'm, I'm not going to Not cool. Not too much that. pressure. Yeah. I gotta, I'm going to have to keep up with music. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and figure out what people are wearing. So you felt like an outsider? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, de- um, I was always an awkward kid mm-hmm. i just never I, I was always behind never knew what to do with myself or like how to be mm-hmm. uh i feel like i i got most of my i, I so my, my friend my best friend this is this kid named joey he was a cool kid and i i never i never was and i i always felt very intimidated by him and much of my early life was uh was defined by trying to get him to think that i was cool uh-huh and and he would he would you know, give me advice on like how to dress. Yeah. So I would, I spent, you know, my early preteen years wearing like Jinko jeans and baggy shirts. Yeah. Just totally. Sure. Like rocking the skater guy look. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, did, and you never felt comfortable? I mean, I, I didn't fit into anybody but him. Like he, he didn't know what he was doing either is the thing. Like he didn't know what he was doing. So he was to pulling me, he looked it off. Like, right. Like he, look, he looked like he knew what he was so doing. So he confided in you that like, look, I don't know what's going on either. So he didn't we're... confide in me. It's just now that, I, now that we're adults, I can clearly see them. Oh, like... you're still friends with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. So it lasted. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> and, and you, it, it, initially it wasn't a dating thing. It was just pals. No, no, you just felt like just outsiders. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was like the tumor on his life. He saw that I, I wasn't meshing with, like, he found this group of cool friends, and I wasn't meshing with the cool friends. <laughs> what do you mean we're meshing? What, how does that happen? <laughs> like, what, what, what moment signifies that for you, the unmeshing? They, they, could, they could just tell, like, they, cool kids have this sense where they can just know that you aren't one of them, right? <laughs> and they can see, like, and, okay, so it, it also didn't help that about three months earlier, my friend Joey had dared me to shave my head. Uh, just, oh, you did that? I did that um, because because he dared me to, and I didn't want to look like people I was that don't know who they are can't shave their heads. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't I, know who I was. And I, I did that. And I, I hadn't I hadn't worried about it at, up till that point, really. And what happened? Well, so so this was I was thirteen, I think, when I shaved my head, uh, and this it was like it was really bad timing. It was about two weeks before I discovered that I'm interested in boys. Yeah, uh, I, I had no like no view of self before this no like mm. no self-consciousness nothing then i shaved my head and i discovered wow i'm not pretty and uh, and, and, and it was pure like there was, was this was unadulterated it like was, it, yeah, it no was, distraction with hair this is yeah it was nothing baseline. And, and oh and i had giant braces and, and you know when you when you do something like that like yeah. when you do something that's so obviously like it it just shows that you don't know how to 
fit, you know, do the things that show people you can be one of them. Like they see you and they're like, this, there's something wrong here. My dad sent me to a Dale Carnegie uh, training course on how to win friends and influence people. Really? For 18 weeks, uh, I went and with some businessmen and women and, um, and it saved me. It saved me. Yeah. Like I was super depressed, was like sleeping all day through school and, and I was like, okay. And I totally did all the things and suddenly like I was able to have friendships, you know, like where just had like a format of how to talk to people. Uh Uh-huh. And because I had so much anxiety. And so, you know, I would say, hi, Mark. Mark, it's really great to see you. You know, Mark, your set was so great last night, Mark. I really, I mean, so would in And then you listen to people and then you tell the person back what they just said, but with yeah. a positive spin on it. And um, and it was fantastic, I tell you. And uh, like immediate uh, results. Really? Yeah. And then, then it all crashed down. Uh, um, I went to college, and people on the East Coast were like, why are you talking like that to me? Why are you all... Just calm down. Oh, no. You know, and I'm Where'd like, you go to college? Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> oh, um, no. I was at Bates, Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, so and the, I think there was an, an air of hysteria with my Dale Carnegie techniques in college because I was very afraid. <laughs> so I'm sure they were telling me to calm down for good reason. So you're smiling a lot and very yeah, wired. Yeah. You're like, oh, very nice. <laughs> Gillian Jacobs. My interests were always very different than what other kids yeah. my age were into. So I think that we didn't really have a lot to talk about. And I think the more they didn't understand me, the louder I talked about what I was into. So they just didn't know what to make of me. Did you wear costumes and whatnot? Or what? I didn't wear costumes to school, no, but my mom would only let me buy clothes that she approved of. So I had like, I wore a lot of sweater sets in high school because she liked sweater sets. And In high school still? Yeah. You couldn't fight that, didn't no, you? No, no. I remember, I remember like going to a, an outlet store and wanting to buy a skirt that my, it was not a revealing skirt, it was a floor length skirt, but my mom was like, I don't like it. The material looks cheap and she wouldn't let me buy it. So you were stuck in sweater outfits? I was stuck at, dressed like a middle-aged woman, yeah. The Amazing Jonathan. I, I used to be able to bend spoons. I, I figured out how to bend a spoon with uh, using my mind, but it was just misdirection. I would make them look away for a second, and I would bend it. And, is that but, what most hand sweaty yeah, hand is? Yeah, but I, I could do it really, really well, and I did it for my physics teacher, who I really admired, and he said to me, is that real? Are you really doing this, or is it a trick? Yeah. And I was really unpopular in school. I was like not standing out at all. Yeah. So I, I lied, and I said, yeah, I can really do it, thinking that that would be the end of it. Yeah. Nah, and it's high. the next hour I'm sitting in class, I hear on the speaker, Jonathan, John Zellis, please come to the principal's house. I'm shit, this yeah. has something to do with the spoon bending. Yeah. I know it does. Yeah. I walk in there, there's my mom and my dad, who they, they call out of work, there's a bunch of spoons on the desk and a local reporter from the Macomb Daily Paper. Yeah. And I'm like, Fuck! This is not what, good. So man. the physics teacher set you up to this? Yeah, f- he asked me if it was real, and I lied to him and said yeah. So yeah. he called, he told, uh, the, and they got a reporter to come down. They wanted me to demonstrate my powers. My mom took me aside before this. I said, "Can you really do this? Or are you just lying?" Yeah. And I looked her straight in the eye and I said, "I can really do it." This is like a snowball going right. down. I said, "I can really do it." Yeah. And so I proceeded to bend all the spoons, and they freaked out. And, and then I thought- you, you succeeded in the trick at all times. Yeah. I, I, I bent everything, and the reporter's he's chomping at the bit to do this great story about yeah. a psychic kid. Yeah. 
But I had to figure a way out of it because I figured that the magicians, local magicians, would bust me on it and make me a fraud. But make, but but they can't they can't give away the trick. Why would they? Well, they would they would say I'm lying that, that this is what he's doing. Like like magicians do. You know, magicians they I, bust Yuri Geller for doing it. Yeah, they'll bust me too. They'll, I mean, if it's in the paper. You can bet someone's going to come forward and go, but that's bullshit. He's right, just right. So I had to figure a way out of it, and this is how I got out of it. Yeah. I told my mom that I did want to be a normal kid. I didn't want to be a freak in the school. I, didn't, <laughs> I just wanted to be a normal kid. I didn't want all, everyone looking at me like I was weird. And she bought it. They all bought it, and nobody did the story. And, but it leaked. This is the good part. It leaked out, and yeah. I, I didn't get that, that press, which I didn't want. But everyone thought I was this mysterious and I, I got mad pussy. I got yeah. like mad pussy Come in my on. senior year. Yeah? I did, yeah. Oh, because you were like the wizard. Yeah, I was like yeah. the man who fell to earth. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So. <laughs> and that's when you knew show business was the thing? Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Man, if, if a chick thinks that you can read her mind or anything like that, you're in. Did you try to do that with chicks? Oh, yeah. Would they go to the bathroom? I'd go through their purse, take their license out, get their birth date, know their Zodiac sign. I have all the details. We could put it back real fast in their purse they come back and hey, we'd be doing lines and more. Let, let me touch your forehead for a minute boom you're a Virgo John Glazer I remember my stepdad telling me about that when he and my mom told me they were getting married I was in high school oh. and he said he was he said he was actually very impressed about how I handled it like they just told me they were getting married I remember those both of those you? moments uh, when my mom and my stepdad got married I was probably 14 and he said um I just sort of like sat there quietly. Yeah. You know, just took it in. Uh-huh. Kind of just got up from the table, went upstairs, put on like shorts and t-shirt and my running shoes and just went jogging. <laughs> but it wasn't like I could go like running somewhere and then come back. Right. We lived in this apartment complex right. that sort of had a loop. So like they told me they were getting married and then I just left and they watched me run laps. <laughs> <laughs> around the building but he yeah but he said he was well it was like around five buildings yeah it wasn't just like shoo, shoo, like yeah. quick laps right but he said he was like oh that's i'm very impressed how he's handling this and he's dealing with it yeah but also when my dad i remember when he told me he was getting remarried the first time yeah um i was in sixth grade and i was taking violin lessons I was doing uh-huh. i think the suzuki uh-huh. and he picked me up and he, my mom always picked me up so right away i'm like uh-huh. all right Okay. This is after their divorce, obviously. Yes. It? Yes. They live close by. How old were you when they got divorced? I was probably eight. Yeah. And so now sixth grade. Was that devastating? Like, it was pretty weird. I have vague memories of it, but uh, I remember being you know, just crying and yeah. sitting on the steps and just being really upset yeah. and yelling, but I don't remember the moment. Right. It's just all kind of vague, but I do remember being upsetting. But when he was getting remarried the first time, I yeah. do remember, yeah, picking up me, you know, picking me up from violin and... Uh, that was that was already something I know something's up something's not right yeah and then hey I thought we you know go get a bite to eat you know anywhere you want to go I was like all right <laughs> the fuck is going on yeah. and, uh, and th- there was a sub shop ironically enough because I know I do all the sandwich humor stuff which people are probably like all right we get it you yeah. like sandwiches but yeah. there was a place that I liked right across the street and I just it was more about like oh well, let's just go there like right. I didn't it wasn't like I was gonna say oh great let's go to this great place yeah. I just knew something was up yeah. So we went there, but it wasn't a sit-down place. So we get these sandwiches and just go sit in his car right. in the parking lot. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I can face facing the school across the street. And I'm just sitting there kind of, you know, very kind of tight, you know. Eating your sandwich. Eating my sub and it's right next to me and, you know, tight to my chest. And I just, 
I kind of felt like I knew what was coming. Yeah. The more I'm just think, trying to think about like what is going on. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I think I know what's about to happen. And so we're sitting there and kind of quietly eating. And he's like, hey, so, uh, you know, I got some news for you. And uh, just wanted to let you know that, you know, Shelly and I are decided to get married. And I can just, you know, feel my body just you know, <laughs> crunching the sandwich. Super tense and just not sure you just didn't know how to handle yeah. it but it was upsetting yeah and it shouldn't have been you know it should have been like oh great yeah you know you're, you're yeah, great good for you did you like shelly she was awesome yeah she was so cool but i was just like <laughs> didn't know how to handle it and yeah. so i did i did not say a word i just right. sat there just eating my sandwich probably not even eating it just yeah. but just kind of just, <laughs> and we just sat there in silence and then he eventually started the car and drove me back to my mom's. It was really fucking weird. And I don't think we've ever even talked about it. Not because we're avoiding it. I yeah. always just forget. But I always just, I want to, I feel like I have to just, what was he? Th so just to know what he was thinking yeah. in that moment, how he felt. Yeah. So weird. Amy Schumer. Um, okay, so mom leaves dad. Yeah. Has an affair with my best friend's dad. Oh man! Breaks up their family. And uh, did I'm you in were... school. We're trying to still be best friends. Like we were best friends. It was crazy. It it's was weird because it always happens in the community. People forget that. Like you know, when you when you stick your dick into something that's you know nearby, uh -huh. the ripple effect is going to be fairly profound. There are yeah, like that. That vagina is going to be at a PTA yeah. meeting oh, with yeah. your wife next week. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it so sucked. It was, it, so the whole town was affected by it. Yeah, and mm. so she was like, you know. She was she Hester Brynn. She was. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and maybe that's like sort of where it came from. Like I was like, well, I, yeah. I love my mom. She's yeah. my family. So yeah. fuck you guys. Yeah. And then years later, I was like, mom, how could you do that? <laughs> you know, but not till a while later. Did you say that to her? When I was when I was 16, I got angry. I was running away. I that's when I started really stealing a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was funny. I um. I played volleyball like pretty seriously. Right. I was on this club team and it was yeah. like uh, preliminaries for the Junior yeah. Olympics. And uh, my mom was a chaperone. We had to go to San Jose, right. from New York to right. San Jose. And uh, I got caught stealing at this tournament. So I was benched the whole tournament. And yeah. she just like, so I'm standing there with my knee pads around my ankles. And my mom's just like standing there, there for the whole weekend, having to stare at me with hatred. But I could always stare right back at her and be like, yeah, but you ruined my life. My dad uh, had a drug problem for a while, and then which drug? Uh, I'm I'm assuming a few, but mostly yeah. cocaine. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, so he so that's why your parents split up because of the mm -hmm. drugs. So your mom was like, "Fuck this! I'm going to Chicago with the kids. If you get your shit together, give me a call." Yeah. Okay. And so he didn't call for several years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted to really finish up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever he was working on. <laughs> it's a business too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but he started getting in touch uh, a little bit later, and um, he was going to Portland to work in construction, and um, Chicago wasn't working out too well for me. He's got his own things going on. We don't really talk that much. You don't? No. Why? Um, it's just was never a positive influence for me. Like yeah. anything that I wanted to do. Like he wasn't there to parent me, but he still wants to, you know, then offer advice. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, you don't, he was like, wants me to be a super Christian. Like he wants me, you know. Oh really? He's one yeah, of them? he's one of those. When did that come around? After the drugs left? <laughs> yeah, of course. You gotta yeah. always replace one thing with another. Yeah. Replace Coke with Jesus. <laughs> I think that's a slogan. And then out of the high school, just um, hanging out and <laughs> working at canneries or uh uh, Chuck E. Cheese. Canneries? What's canneries? Uh, you know, where you can groceries or can beans and broccoli and stuff at a factory. You put it in cans? Mm-hmm. 
They have those in Portland? Yeah. Well, they had them in, in, in the Oregon. Yeah, in Salem. Is that, I didn't know it was known for that. They're known for being cannery yeah, places? Yeah, they have like a Flavor Right, Flavor Right, the, you know, any type of frozen peas place. Oh, yeah? Those, yeah. That's where they come from? Mm-hmm. And did you, uh, what, did, would you operate machinery? No, uh, <laughs> never. I would just have to pick out stocks of broccoli and put them in a chute and avoid putting my fingers close to blades. And then one day that my job was to pick out, uh, like rats and snakes out Come of on, the stuff. Man. And yeah, that was the last day I went. Come on, man. <laughs> out of the vegetables? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Dead ones? Yeah. Well, because they'd steam Because they just kind of get rooted up. They're not like plucked out by individual farmers, you know? They're just put all together. And so when you, when they're originally dumped, they're just dirt and rocks and vegetables and dead rodents. Really? I let a lot of rats go through. You did not? Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. You think, do, you, do I look like a person that touched a lot of rats? No. No. Wyatt Sinak. I was born in New York. New York um, City. New York City. I was born in, in New York, and I, I lived there for a little while. My mother and father lived there, and then my they split up when I was about a year old. Oh, really young. Yeah, my mother remarried, and then maybe when I was about three, my mother, stepfather, and I moved to Texas, and we moved to Dallas, Texas. What was he, where, What happened with the uh, original old man? Uh, he, like, where is he now? Yeah. He was murdered when I was four. But you had a relationship with him? Yeah. I mean, he was, I I would still go visit. I'd, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother lived in New York, yeah. so I would spend time with her, and then I would spend time with him as well, and his brother, uh, who lived in New York as well. Like, I would see them all, and my grandmother... Even after he got killed, like my grandmother did a good job of trying to keep you in the fold. Keep well, at least keep talking about him because once he once he died, my uncle left and moved back to Grenada, which is where my father was from. Really? Yeah. He, he just got murdered. Yeah, he was a New York City cab driver, and he uh, took a fare up to Harlem, and then they robbed him and shot him. God damn it! Yeah, no, it's pretty. It's pretty intense. I. Just recently, like about a, a maybe two years ago, uh, a friend of mine connected me to uh, an NYPD detective who pulled up the file, and I got to see everything. They had pictures of the scene. They didn't have pictures of the scene, but there was. I always knew where it happened, but then this sort of laid it out in this way of, oh well, the car. You know, once he was shot, he died on this. You know, instantly, and then. His foot was on the gas, and it the car went across the like the median and crashed into some cars, and so and then there were some witness accounts and stuff like that. It was really amazing. And then through it, by at the end of it all, there is the there's the guy. Like they caught the guy, and I had his whole rap sheet, and it's it was weird to just see that and to just get a fuller picture of that that guy and. He lives in he lives in Brooklyn, and there's like a whole kind of weirdness of just, oh wow, this person like I I've seen his whole life. I see his rap sheet. He's he didn't stay in jail after murder. No, he did. He got a really short sentence for it. He was, I think he was 16 when he did it, and so even that it's kind of amazing because I just think about like he was 16 and this thing 
like it just set him on a path weirdly enough was doing time in north carolina at the same time i was in college in north carolina where'd you go I went to university in North Carolina. But it's just strange, these little sort of intersections of life where it's like, oh, yeah, we were both in the, we were both in North Carolina at the same time. in a different institution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Different, different state-run institution. <laughs> both not the best football teams. Really underperforming football teams in both situations. But wait, so now... The dude who murdered your biological father lives in the same city as you. Yeah. As a free man. Yeah. Do you have any uh, compulsion to meet his murderer? Not really. Yeah. No. I And people have asked me that once I once I sort of discovered it and everything. And I kind of, I was just like, I don't really have anything to say to the dude. Like, it's, if anything, there is a part of me where I, I look at, him and what he did and i there's a sense of you know he is he is partially responsible for me being who i am in a good way kind of yeah yeah i mean it's it's i've actually joked about it on stage because it, it is this thing where it's like i'm not gonna send him a father's day card but there is this element of like oh no this this was a traumatic event that changed me in in the way i saw the world Mm -hmm. and you're the person that did that like you who knows who knows how differently my life would be i'm assuming it would probably i'd probably still be in the same place right but maybe my father would have been the deadbeat that uh he was to my sister to me and maybe i would have dealt with that or maybe i'd have Right. gone to New York and lived with him and it would have changed my impression of him in that way or something. The you whole know. trajectory. Yeah. Who knows? You know, like if you grew to favor him over your mother, who the hell knows where that would have went? Yeah. But it's... Wild. But so in that way, it is like, oh yeah, this one thing, like that idea of the butterfly effect or something like sure. that, like, oh, this is that one instance of, oh yeah, here it is. Amy Mann. You know, my childhood was pretty fragmented. My mother left when I was three years old. There was a lot of drama ar- around that because she ran off with a with a guy and he was married and, and they took me and my father didn't know where I was. And, it, you know, so it was just like a lot of... Really? Yeah, there was a lot of drama. How did that play out? I was eventually found and, and brought back, but, you know, it was probably like nine months later. And So you were a three-year-old. Yeah. Your mom kidnapped you with yeah. this dude that she ran off with who yeah. was also married yeah. and took you to another state or... Uh, out of the country. Really? Yeah. Did, am I supposed to know this? No. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> we mean, like, should you not know it? Well, well no, 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 no. No, I mean, like, I, I, I don't know if we ever talked about it before, but I that's... I don't think so. I don't know. That's, like, where... Like, so you, this is from Virginia. Yeah. She, and where'd they take you? I think we were, we wound up in England, but we, I think we spent some time in, in Germany. I remember being in in Amsterdam. What was the plan? I don't know what the plan was. I think he was going to get a job. The guy was. And just move. Yeah, they were moving there. It, uh, just overnight-ish. Yeah. Did they both get divorced before they did this? I don't think so. Wow. And he took his kids because he had kids. Yeah. So, so it's it like, like, here's your new family. Yeah. Was this a guy from the neighborhood? Somebody that yeah. your father knew? Somebody who worked for my father. Oh my god! <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's. Uh, there's a lot of drama. There's a lot of drama. And, in it, Mark. And, uh, so did did someone have to go 
international to get you? My father had um, hired a private detective, but I think he found out where I was by accident because, um, you know, he was in advertising. He was in the same business. Yeah. And I, th- I think how I was found was that my father just, you know, in the course of doing business had run into a guy who said, oh, I, I saw that uh, saw that guy that used to work for you. And it, and it was him. Okay. So, so th- does your father fly overseas and get you? I don't. You know, I don't know. I think she flew back with me, and then I and I was taken to my grandparents for a month, which is crazy. Like, I mean, it's all fucking crazy. Have you ever kind of like sat them down or him down and gotten he, the deets on this? Thing? Yeah, he's told he told me most of this. Um, she obviously doesn't. I I know her now, but I didn't. You know, I I sort of didn't really see her until. You know, I got back in touch with her in my mid twenties, but uh, she obviously doesn't really want to talk about it. So she was out of the picture that whole time. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And and it's it's bananas. (laughs) Oh, here's a here's another detail. Yeah. (laughs) Um, the uh, I I think we were all staying at a hotel or something, and um, he, I, I was at I was three years old playing out playing by myself in the parking lot, and he hit me with a car and knocked me unconscious. The other guy. Yeah, the guy, the boyfriend. On purpose. I'm, I probably not. Oh my god! Probably not. But he did yell at me for causing an accident. For 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 causing for being in the street yeah. in front of his car. That's right. So that that is some that that I've never heard of child abuse where the child was hit by an automobile. <laughs> that, you were you were not just hit. You were hit by an automobile and then blamed for that. Yeah. Well, look. It was only a VW bug. Oh, so you know yeah. what? You, you, what could you could have won? <laughs> Tom Arnold. When I was ten, he married the next door neighbor, and she had a couple kids, and that was terrible. Um, it was terrible because she'd come from a very corporal punishment background, uh-huh. and I was the oldest, and she was going to tame me. Yeah, and it and it made my life. It was it was a. Uh, not not a pleasant uh, experience. I get along with her now, of course. Um, I I know it was hard for her because I was like, oh my god, you're taking my dad. But he yeah. did he did ask me if he could marry her. And, yeah, and I remember saying, well, yeah, because of course. But she know. beat everybody up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she had a, a chart on the fridge and check marks during the day for when my dad got home, and this is how many whips he'd get. And uh-huh. and, and the saddest thing, and I just thought this recently because my son's born. Was the times I was in bed, man, I was loaded up with the un- extra underwear, the padding, because I knew it was coming, because there had been a lot of check marks next to my name. And uh, he would say, oh, come on, Ruth, I don't want to. She goes, God damn it, it's him or me. You know, and so you're oh 10, God. and you're hearing that, and you're like, oh, my God, I don't want my dad to get divorced. And then you, so you march you on take, down there and say, the let's do it. Yeah, I want my dad to be yeah, happy. Yeah. I'll take the hit. Yeah. Bruce Springsteen. How could you live in a house where there was so much kindness and great cruelty. Yeah. You know, it was very, very difficult to understand those things, and it set you very on edge. Uh, you had your own little local minefield that you had to walk every single day, which caused a great deal of anxiety and neuroticism in me. Right. You were always on edge. You were always waiting for, you know, you had this one great thing but then you were always waiting for the other shoe to drop made me a very nervous kid my mom got divorced three times when i was a kid growing up yeah yeah that was a little rough we lived a lot in uh, small apartments and moved around long island just weird stepdads yeah weird stepdads i remember um 
I had one stepdad who re- refused to let me call him by his name. His name was Cordell. I could not call him Cordell. I had to call him. He, he made me call him Daddy, which is, in retrospect, weird. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but yeah, I, you know, the craziest thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll be embarrassed that my dad is probably going to listen to this. But my dad got into a fist fight with my stepdad in front of me which when I was a stepdad? kid. Stepdad. Stepdad, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was crazy. As a kid, to see, like, your real dad and your stepdad, like, how, fight, like, how fucking go for it. How? I was young. I was like, I was like nine or what ten. What was that about? It Do was you even like know? I remember seeing it. Like my dad and I come back from apple picking, and back from apple picking, sitting, uh, coming in, seeing my stepdad who was in a bathrobe. My stepdad was a truck driver for a supermarket, you know. And and uh, my dad came in and he goes, "You don't say fucking hello to me, Bill." And my dad's Whoa. like, my dad's <laughs> like, I said hello to you. It's your fucking fault if you didn't hear it. Then all of a sudden, my stepdad picked up a coffee mug, fucking wailed it at the like my dad's head. My dad ducking it, exploded on the wall, <laughs> no and way. then then all of a sudden, like they just went at it like a grappling thing around my kitchen table. My dad's the the most nice, you know, well-adjusted guy. And then all of a sudden, apples are flying. So like I'm throwing apples, my dad is throwing apples, like, and they fight out until they like literally leave the house, like outside the front door, oh, no. like that kind of fighting. My dad's a pharmacist, and again, like you know, and my pharmacist fighting a truck driver. It was like something like out of a Clint Eastwood movie. It was like boom, boom. It was insane, insane <laughs> stuff. You know, that was like, yeah. So how, how did that resolve itself? It resolved itself very cheesily, which was <laughs> um, uh, like hours later, um, I got on the phone and Cordell was on the phone in my house and my dad was on a payphone, and they apologized to each other while I was in the middle. Like, you know, because like, I could for be For your like, benefit? Yes, yeah, so for my benefit to hear them apologize like to they, each other. They all decided probably on your mom's instruction that yes. this wasn't a good thing for the kid to see? Exactly. So they had to, like, get together and apologize <laughs> over me. So that was... That was a, yeah, like that, looking back on that, that was a pretty terrible. Do you remember being upset? What was your reaction? Were you crying? Was it like. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's. It was all just chaos. It was chaos. And also, like, crazy because it's like you're watching your dad get into a fight. Did you like the guy? I didn't like this. My uh, my Bill, my dad, loved. Uh, My stepdad hated him. It was like an abusive fuck of a dude. Like a terrible. Oh, your dad is Bill. My dad is Bill, yeah. And your your stepdad was. Cordell. Oh, that was Cordell. That was Cordell, and he was just an abusive, bad dude. But uh, yeah, you know, he'd come home like literally an arm in a cast because he got into a fight with you know at like work. You know, like did he beat you up? Um, yeah, like a little bit. I mean, like I say it very cavalierly, but yeah, like I mean, we would get into some fucking fights. Like I can't even imagine that. Like we, I lived on a farm, and like we had horses and dogs and stuff, and like. I would talk back a lot. Like, I, that was my thing. And, that's what uh, comics do. Yeah, and so that's like... <laughs> that's how I, we find our voice. Yeah, I got into a lot of... <laughs> I, I was talking to, like, uh, people this weekend. I was like, I got into a ton of fights all until, like, eighth grade. And I was like, oh, I got to stop Did this. Did you win? Yeah, because I was fighting a 40-year-old guy at home. Like, that's why I was, I was getting I, good so at funny, it. It's so funny. Out of all the people in the world, I would never assume you were a scrapper. Oh, God. Big time. Like, I... Uh, because Holy you, you fight this big fucking 40-year-old dude, this fat dude who's strong and like literally like throwing a pitchfork at me like and dodging a pitchfork get the like, fuck out of here like but i because of that kind of style of fighting i think i never realized how strong i was so like 
when I was in uh, <laughs> dodging pitchfork style. Yeah, well, like it was like you know you just learn to be like more of a grappler, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like you know a lot of like just slaps and runs or punches in the stomachs and runs. And uh, but when I was in sixth grade, I got into this fight with this kid, and he like gave me like a sixth grade punch, like you know a punch in the face. I remember I oh no this is ninth grade I'm sorry yeah. he gra- and I grabbed him by the neck and we were by a car and there was like a car fender there and I was like whap whap like his face into a car fender oh, we were both fuck. suspended from school yeah you know and because he started it I got to go back and he got kicked out but it was but like that kind of like did not realize like that's, I was fighting for a much you know yeah, I was, yeah. you're going for the fucking yeah. money you're gonna <laughs> did yeah. you have to did they have to pull you off him uh I remember that was the time where like my knuckles were bloody from just like punching <laughs> oh my god that was a rough yeah I was a bruiser as a I kid no I had fucking idea Paul Shear badass <laughs> but <laughs> I stopped fuck? I stopped that I you don't had to give that. it up I had to give it because went to comedy a, yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> just turned into a different direction yeah I just I couldn't I remember, like, honestly just being, like, I think at one fight when I was a kid, and this is, like, an early, like, yeah, like, 10th or 11th grade, being like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like this. Like, I had fresh earrings when I was 14 or 15, and mm. that pissed him off to no end. I hadn't consulted anybody about it. I, just, I think I got mom to sign off on it. Right. He just hated that because he was a left-wing political activist who beat his wife and child and was kind of homophobic, right? And huh. uh, and I was getting girly at 14 and 15. I was growing my hair long. I was trying to eyeshadow and rouge and stuff like that. What was the influence there? Who were the musicians? David Bowie and Lou Reed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was into it. I was very into it. So I remember, I remember the, the day that he knocked me hard enough to actually knock out an earring yeah. and, and, the, and the post dug into my neck. And yeah. that was the day that I wound up getting thrown out of the house and had to go live with my dad, dad. How so old were you? 14 or 15. Uh, Ugh, so that was just a fucking mess. It was a mess, and I and the thing is about that period of time was that uh, was that I had at that point a strong network of friends. Like for the first time, I was close enough to grown up that my friends weren't just my friends. Yeah, there were meaningful people in my life who I talked to about my life and who I was constructing that amazing teenage life that you get with. Right? They they know your struggle, you know. And suddenly, you know, this big there was this big blow up day about which I remember only. That he he did that right. He he was slapping me around the face hard enough to make the earring dig into my neck and make me bleed. And I went back to my room and just sat there listening to music. And my mom came down the hall to see it was time for dinner. And I'd been sitting there for half an hour contemplating what I was going to do to express yeah. that I didn't deserve this and, and the extent of the rage. So I punched my window. I put my fist through the window. Right. It felt like a million bucks. I, I bet. Never, never felt so good in my whole life. It was like holy shit. And the house melted down. Right. It was like there was this, this immediate. You know, my stepfather screamed that he was going to beat everybody's ass even worse. And my mother's, my sister's crying. It was a whole terrible scene. You're and bleeding. I was just, Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, bleeding all up the arm. And I just felt like a million bucks. I never, I mean, it was like, you know what? I mean, it just felt so good to show them what it felt like inside. Yeah. To, you know, it, it, there, was, there was no way of getting it through their heads. And also, it's sort of a way of, of, of trumping the pain exactly. that they inflicted or that he inflicted. Yeah. No, that's right. It's like you, you, you win in some weird exactly. way. Exactly. No, that's right. I, I, that, was, that was my victory. But bar none, I think this is the end of the, the, the beginning of the end for us was. Uh, there was a loaded handgun in our house, and I remember Cordell having my mom like held like a hostage with a handgun and seeing that as a kid. What during a fight? During a fight, and that was like, I remember like going, "What is going like that?" You know, as it's a horrifying. kid, and as a I can say it now, and I go, "Wow!" Like even thinking about it now, I'm like, "Wow, that was crazy dark." Like I, that's insane. 
But uh, like as a kid, it doesn't register. I don't think as like what's well, going on. Well, do you just probably sense that your mom's in danger? Yes, and that was like, and it's I remember horrifying. like you must have just been crying all the fucking time. Yeah, and I remember saying to my mom like, "We got to get out of here." Like I mean, my mom's like, "No, no, no, it's okay, it's okay." I was like, "We got to oh go, we got to go." Did and, he hit her too? Um, yeah, he hit me, he hit her. I mean, I, but you know what? Never to the point of like we never were hurt. So I think that was like my, like that was always my kind of. Uh, like line, like oh well, we don't have broken arms, or we don't have this, or we don't have that. Was there some party that felt bad for him? Um, like he, no, like, no, he he wasn't. No, I thought of it. Like he, he didn't me even like, he didn't cry and apologize and fucking. You he know. would apologize, but he was like a like he was like an older brother instead of a yeah a dad. Yeah. Like, so it was like that kind of relationship. So it was a lot of like yeah, a lot of like and a lot of like you know like I think he was in, like competitive for my mom's affection towards me which is insane it's like well that's a mother and a son that's not yeah. you're a husband and you know so it would come out a lot in indium burns like you know like you know like uh, you know like that kind of yeah, stuff yeah, which would yeah. really hurt and but i do remember um calling like my, we like we called child protective services at one point and they came to the house and they interviewed our parents side by side and uh and they were like, does this happen? And my mom's like, no. Cordell and your mom. My mom. And they're like, no. And they talked to me. And I was like, yes. And they're like, oh, well, the kid's lying. The parents are telling the truth. And then and they did she get left. a beating for that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Like, my mom, I think, rebelled in the most crazy way. Because my dad's so nice and, and great. And, and the man she's married to right now, also wonderful and great. So you're saying that, that okay, so Cordell was like, your mom's fuck you to your dad. Yeah. I think that she didn't. She was like, I want something different. And she got something <laughs> insanely different <laughs> uh you know like and then my mom kind of wised up at a certain point and she's like oh we're out of here <laughs> yeah and uh guy's throwing a pitchfork at yeah. my kid this guy has more guns than he has uh shirts you know holy shit Hell. how'd she shake him that sounds like it would have been hard oh, to man, shake that we, guy this is you want to hear how we shook him this yeah. is a crazy thing um my mom created <laughs> she pretended that he won a trip a hunting trip she like like created these envelopes and was like Cordell you won this trip and she and did the layout and she everything did, she did everything and he got a she got him plane tickets got him a hotel and created this whole like fantasy seven days away from him the minute he left the house a moving truck pulled in and we got all of our shit out of the house and we took off you left Cordell's we farm left, yeah we left Cordell's farm and we moved into a small one bedroom apartment or two bedroom apartment and uh, and just that was it my stepfather died and he died and my sister called in the middle of the night to say mike's dead and then i went on tour a month or two later and stuff started to crack open it was really amazing i just started to to feel free with my feelings you know uh and in general well no with 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 those with just my my vision my my ability to think about that time and how and and how far I'd come. I lived in Iowa at the time. I you was, think that some uh, impact was that you, you know the abuser was dead? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's like I tell people, I tell survivors when they come up to me in the merch line, is like you know they'll say, "Why well, I, I survived abuse? Has your abuser died yet?" And they will say, "You know, no." And I say, "I want you to be ready because it is." I mean, I hate to say this because you don't wish death on anybody. It's wonderful when your abuser dies. It's wonderful. It's like nothing in the world. It's like you are free. Yeah, I mean, you, there's a feeling that you will never be free of what you were. You know, there's that. But there is this, you know, even though my stepfather was helpless at the end of his life, but to know that the person who used to hurt you no longer can is very, very, very deep. It's it's unbelievable. You forgive him? 
No. Which I hate about myself, but but I don't. My biggest fear, and it was a fear that I had as a kid, because there would be times where, as a kid, my mother might show up somewhere, or she would have somebody like spy on me and do shit like that. Like it was a really paranoid house growing up. Where I remember one time I was supposed to, I was supposed to leave my car at a certain place, and. Uh, I was picking up this this girl that I was seeing at the time. We were going to go to Six Flags Amusement Park. So I was supposed to leave my car on one side of town, Six Flags on another side of town, both far from where my folks live. And so I go pick up the girl. She's like, we should drive to Six Flags together. It'd be romantic because we were supposed to ride with her sister. And I was like, well, I don't know. My mom says I yeah. And then she kind of like, touched my leg and it was like okay let's do it (laughs) yeah we drive and i had to take the highway and i think that was like my folks didn't want me on the highway get there fine come back and my mother used to make me carry around this cell phone one of those big big ass car phones phones ringing nonstop. the girl answers it and i and i'm just like i immediately hang it up and i'm like what the fuck are you doing yeah and then i eventually answer it my mother's like you know why didn't you pick up the phone i was like i don't know if you called the right number this is the first time it rang and (laughs) i dropped the i dropped the girl off and i get home and as i'm pulling into the driveway i see my stepfather has been tailing me at some point and his car is coming behind mine and so he somewhere picked me up on the road followed me back in the back to our house what i learned is that my mother sent somebody to go see if my car was where it was supposed to be and this is what she tells me later she goes send see if my car is where it's supposed to be when it's not she calls the police knowing i took it she calls the police thinking that the police will pick me up and i'll learn a lesson how old were you i was probably 17 and so, so there was, and so, and then when I get home, like she has sort of opened up all of like all my papers, anything that I had like locked up. And like, I, I used to keep like a briefcase where I could kind of lock things up. All that stuff is spread out on her bed and on the kitchen table. And it was one of those things where it's almost like the police have come in and raided the place and they're just going through everything. But it's like violating. Violating in a way that was like, this doesn't even have anything to do with the crime at at hand. Like the the right. crime was that I took a car, I took a car on the highway. You're now looking at this as like, well, let's go through his diary. Yeah, let's basically go through all this shit. And so there was always that sense of violation. And that's what I lived with was this constant sense of you never know who you never know who's your real friend. Like there was there was a there was a girl I knew. She's actually she's uh, uh, she a girl I grew up with. She at one point told me that my mother had asked her to befriend me just to keep an eye on you yeah and just to report information but yeah and she did that to my roommate one of my roommates when i lived out here and she was like tell me like just keep me in the loop on stuff and it was just like this very strange paranoid distrustful house halfway through my first semester i remember i was failing out yeah and then they sent uh 
they sent like they would send like a midterm report to your house and so i'm in the shower and my roommate comes knocking on the on the on the door of the bathroom and he's like hey your folks are on the phone and i was like well i'm on the shower i'm in the shower i'll call him back and so then he goes back and a minute later he's like they're not getting off the phone they're saying get off the shower get out of the shower and so i'm just like oh shit like you know i'm thinking did somebody die like what the fuck is going on yeah i go in and uh i don't even have to put the phone next to my ear my mother and stepfather screaming so loud about my grades at that point and just like you're failing out of everything we will come down there and my roommate and his girlfriend can hear the whole thing and it's just this very strange it was like it was this thing of oh shit i have to get my act together because i don't want to go back there like that was that was it like you know i'm not going back yeah and that was i mean that house like it was you know there was a lot there was a lot of distrust there was a lot of yelling there was a lot of that stuff so it was like oh right i don't want to go back but i'm also not this student that she wants me to be i have to figure out who I am and I've got to figure out like the classes I need to take to make this work so I never have to go back there. Leslie Jones. So you, okay, so you left here, you got a scholarship to Fort Collins. Now, Colorado is probably the whitest state in the world. The what? absolutely and probably still is the white you know what like, I I'm think sc- that that's what I'm, they need I'm, to change I'm not white enough to. for Colorado no, they would kick you the fuck out they'd be like yeah you got some engine or something in you son they <laughs> yeah, got some Jew in there there was some Jew in what's there what's going on you ain't yeah. pure you ain't pure no it not only are the, is the very whitest town mm-hmm. it's the very purest they have only the purest air there too mm-hmm. I think they, they check your lungs when you pass the border <laughs> that motherfucker See, that's how when we went when I went up there and was working out that shit was killing me the air because it's too high altitude it was killing me son. well i mean you get sick you get tired oh, you, know, it was you can't just, breathe oh my god it was killing me and i was i was uh i still was the best basketball player on the team because, were you the only black player yes i was the only black player mr <laughs> marin yes, yes i man. was yeah. the only black player well <clears throat> there was a light-skinned girl but she really didn't count yeah. so um and she didn't come to the next year so but how but how did that make you feel how were you treated were you, first of all I hated every, I complained, literally, I got there and I didn't know that I was going to be the only black girl on yeah. the team. Literally, I was like, I I am fucking in, this is, this is I don't know if how this is going to work out because right. I'm very militant too. Yeah. So I'm very outspoken. So yeah. what, what did you, yeah. you know, I'm yeah. that. And so it's like <laughs> when I walked into basketball practice, I walked in with a radio. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm the stereotype yeah, on your shoulder. I walked in yeah. like I was going to the park to play ball because yeah. that's where I played is yeah. at the park. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was, it was an adjustment for me and I was very lonely. I was in Colorado and a lot of times I was like, oh, I was rebelling on all levels. So my coach knew that I was like at the point where I was, I wanted to go home because mm. he came to my apartment. I had my mattress in the living room because mm-hmm. I just was like, I just was like, this was so new to me. Like I had my own place. I was like this. If I, oh God, if I could go back, if I could go back with my mind now, oh God, I would have ran that place. I would have ran Colorado. Do you understand me? Why did you have your mattress in the living because room? Because I was scared. I didn't want to sleep in the room. It was nobody in the apartment with me. You know, I was fucking alone. I was scared. So I'm a kid. I was like 18. Mm-hmm. 
So when he came to the apartment, he was like, oh, my God, you got to meet people. You got to meet other black people. So he found the BSU on, on campus, mm-hmm. the Black Student Union. Yeah. Yes, there's a building full of black yeah, people yeah. on the campus. Here and I'm go. sending you This there. is where we keep them. And this, <laughs> the, and this, if you was to talk to him today, he would say that was the worst thing I ever did because I completely became a party animal. My folks left me in 1969, which was a little unusual, usually you leaving them, but they left me in New Jersey in 1969 and went to California. Right. Um, so that sort of left you on your own to continue parenting yourself as best as you could, and uh, uh, you know your life was your life was yours from that point on. Right. You know, and and. Uh, uh, that suited me. Yeah, you know, it, it it was it was it was just one of the things that for where I was at, I was independent already. I had the band, I had my own little community that I was a part of. I was making a few bucks on the weekend so I could I could survive, and I was happily independent. Right. So, uh, not making a lot of money. No, right. of course you're only you're making twenty dollars. <laughs> right, but anybody that couldn't live on twenty or forty dollars in 1969, uh, having no dependents and right. no, you know, anybody could do that. You right, know? so it was a different time. Yeah, I mean, you ate for, you know, you three three dollars a day, right. four dollars a day was yeah. all you needed to eat. So yeah. it was, it, it was, it was just enough money to get by and have a good time on. Terry Gross. Well, my parents, when I decided to hitchhike cross-country, they were very, very upset about it. I'm, I'm upset now. Well, now, now, that, now that I'm the age that I am, yeah. I think, like, my gosh, no wonder they were so upset. But my attitude then was, you know, you're not telling me what to do. Right, fuck you, like, right? I'm an adult. Right, Yeah. right. It's like, you don't control me anymore. Yeah. Dan Harmon. For, for those of us who are not prodigies... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Who are who are not uh, blowing minds by fifteen? You know, yeah. um, I think it's better to grow up in a smaller town where you can just you have this sandbox where you, if you decide at twenty two that you want to do stand up, you want to be a writer, you right? Do, 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 you, you in Milwaukee, if you stood on a street corner and said, "I'm a welder," and you did that three days in a row, sooner or later someone's going to give you a job welding. Like it's just. <laughs> It was, and yeah. that same went for writers. I mean, right. you didn't get paid anything, right? But, but, but in the five years from when I declared myself a writer to yeah. when I was leaving for L.A., I was like working for the mayor. I was doing like radio shows. It was like, like within Milwaukee, I was, I was given every opportunity that I that I thought that I wanted. You know what I mean? You like, made it to the top. If I wanted to write a play, I could write a play. If right. I wanted to if I wanted to do a radio commercial for Bacardi, there was always you know some ad campaign would come through and they wanted a cheap writer. Yeah. It was um it was a nice place to cut your teeth. President Barack Obama. I started keeping a journal when I was around twenty. Yeah. And uh you know, kept it up until I went to law school. Yeah. So for about seven years. Sometimes I go back and I read this stuff and I'm I'm still the same guy, yeah, which is good. Emotionally, or not? obviously not emotionally, but I mean, there's moments where you can sort of lock in. Like, yeah. what parts of your journal are you like, oh, like, are there still struggles that you were having then that you have but, now? Well, that's where stuff's changed in yeah. the sense that stuff that was bugging you, by the time you're 53, either you worked it out or 
you just forgiven yourself and you've said, look, this is who I am. Oh, but I got to write that down. Right. So I can just forgive myself? Well, uh, you know, assuming that. Uh, it wasn't know, too heinous. You're, you're not hurting anybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, no, but you know what I mean? The, I, I think that you. At that age, you're still trying to figure out. Right. Uh, who are you? How do I live? What's my code? Right. What's important to me? What's not important to me? And you're sorting through all kinds of contradictions. And, yeah. And, you know, by the time you get to into your 50s, hopefully a lot of those have been resolved. You've come to terms and come to peace with some stuff. And then uh, some stuff you've just said, well, you know what, that, that's just who I am. I, the, uh, I've got some flaws. I've got some strengths. And uh, that's okay. I think I had a good escape back then, though, in a way. Like, I feel like... I don't know. Like Love I love TV and movies, and I really got into Moses like comedy. And the Batmobile. Yeah, Moses and the Batmobile. But like, I really got into movies and TV, and, and the I comedy was a real comedy. Reprieve. Yeah, I really. Like, I listened to like Smothers Brothers albums. Like I had all my dad's old Smothers Brothers albums, and just like it was just fun to kind of like sit and and hear that. And I remember like even reading like an article. I think it was a Smothers Brothers article, like where I think they had some messed up parents, and right. I was like, and I remember going like, oh. Okay, well, that's cool because maybe they had messed up parents. I had messed up parents. It evens out. I hope that was a good experience for you. That was uh, chapter one of Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF podcast. Uh, if you're interested in the book, please go ahead and pre-order it now. Go to markmarinbook.com and you can still enter the sweepstakes to win a Casper mattress or away luggage if you upload your pre-order receipt. If you're in New York City, come out to the Union Square Barnes & Noble on the day the book comes out, Tuesday, October 10th at 7 p.m. Brendan and I will talk and do a Q&A and sign books. You don't need a ticket, just get there early enough to get a seat. We'll also be in San Francisco at the Alamo Draft House as part of Litquake. That's Friday, October 13th at 9 p.m. There are a few tickets left for that, so go to litquake.org to get your seats. Okay? All right. Should I play some guitar? Should I? I can. I don't have anything planned. I can play a little. Boomerland.